Well, good morning, church. My name is David, and I serve here as lead pastor, and I want to add my happy Father's Day uh, to each and every one of you. We realize that a day like Father's Day stirs up a variety of emotions in individuals. Some of you, like myself, have lost their dad. Others of you feel like you lost the opportunity of having a good relationship with your dad. Uh, Some of you feel like you've lost the opportunity to become a dad. And wherever you are this morning, we just want you to know that what we love about our Heavenly Father is that we can bring all of those emotions to him. And he meets us where we're at. And so wherever you're at today and whatever your emotions are, we pray that you'll sense the nearness of God's spirit and that you'll be able to rejoice with those who rejoice and grieve with those who grieve and give thanks and pray for the dads in this church as uh, the dads need your prayer. Uh, What an amazing, important opportunity we have to love Jesus in front of our children with all of our hearts, to love our wives in front of our children with integrity, and to love them unconditionally like the Father loves us. So happy Father's Day, and it's so good to see so many of you here this morning. Well, we are in week two of our series. We're studying the life of Nehemiah, and we're learning some really valuable lessons about leadership. And just to kind of catch us up where we are at, in the 6th century B.C., the people of Judah were dragged off into exile by Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar came in with Babylon, and they dragged them off, and and eventually Babylon fell to uh, Persia. And so now, this is about 150 years later, uh, the Israelites, these people of Judah, are still exiled, still under the control of the people of Persia, the king of Persia. And some of the Jews have been allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And this happened under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel and a man named Ezra. And here we are about 150 years later, and we come to Nehemiah. And last week we saw that Nehemiah gets a bad report. Some people come back with a report about what it's like in Jerusalem, and Nehemiah gets this burden. And we learned last week that leaders have to have a burden. It starts with having a burden. And we saw that a burden means pain, that we're going to feel the pain of the burden, that a burden should lead to prayer, and that a burden needs a plan. And so this morning, we're going to learn about how leaders bring vision and the importance of vision as a leader. We're going to pick up this story. This is about four months later. After uh, chapter 1, we have four months between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. Remember, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. But I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king asked, well, how can I help you? What happens next is Nehemiah breathes a quick prayer, And then he makes his request, and he says, send me back. Let me go to where my ancestors are buried to rebuild that city. And what Nehemiah does here is actually very strategic because the people at this time, specifically the Persian people, they had a deep respect for their ancestors and specifically where their ancestors had lived. Now, Artaxerxes was the exact same king who had told the Jewish people, you cannot rebuild the wall. And so Nehemiah has to find a way for Artaxerxes to change his mind while still saving face. 
And so he gives Artaxerxes a whole different rule. Would you sympathize with me because this is where my ancestors are, are buried and go, can I go back? And so the king says, well, how long are you going to go and when are you going to get back? And Nehemiah answers his questions and the king grants permission and says, you can go. And then Nehemiah says, well, I have two more requests. Number one, can you give me a letter that will grant us safe passage from here back to Jerusalem and, and, and a military escort so that we'll get there safely? And number two, will you give us a second letter? And this letter will give us permission to get timber from the king's forest, lumber, so that we can rebuild the walls, the gates, and even his own personal residence. And again, the king says yes. And so what we're seeing here in Nehemiah is that Nehemiah as a leader has vision. We're going to learn three things this morning about vision. And the first thing is this, that vision must start with a burden. Now this is going to connect last week's message with this week's message. Last week we talked about the burden. This week we're talking about vision. But they're inextricably connected because vision comes out of a burden. One of my favorite definitions of vision, it's a very simple short one, is by a pastor, teacher, author named Andy Stanley. And Andy Stanley says this, that vision is a picture of a preferred future. Simple, right? Vision is a picture of a, every single person has right now in their mind a vision. Uh, Maybe it's what you're going to have for lunch. Uh, Maybe it's going home and jumping into the pool. But it's a picture of a preferred future, where I want to be someday and what that will look like. Vision, a picture of a preferred future. And it starts with this idea that something is not quite right with the present, right? So if there's something you would prefer to see in the future, that means there's something you're seeing right now that isn't so great. Vision starts with this burden that things aren't the way they should be. And now listen, almost every single person is good at identifying what shouldn't be. Every person's a good complainer. (laughs) Everybody's good at figuring out what the problems are. But leaders don't just identify problems. Leaders identify solutions. A pastor named Craig Grishel says that every leader is the chief problem solver in their organization. You know, you have chief executive officers, chief financial officers. He's saying, if you're a leader, you are a chief problem solver because you recognize there's something not right about the way things are, but because you lead with vision, you have a picture of a preferred future the way that it could be. I wanted to show you some great vision statements that, uh, that exist out there today, and, and you might recognize some of them. One company's vision statement is a computer on every desk and in every home. This is their vision. This is their picture of a preferred future. This company, of course, is Microsoft. Here's another one to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Any guesses? Yeah, I heard it. Nike. So to create better everyday lives for as many people as possible. This one you probably will not guess, but this is the company Ikea. We don't have an Ikea in the area, but Ikea is a furniture store. But their, their vision is not to make furniture. That's what they do. But their vision is they want to create a better everyday life for as many people as possible. Now, if you've brought one of their things home and tried to build it, you realize they're failing at their vision. But this is what they're they're trying to do, especially if you expect it to last longer than a year. Um, This company's vision is making the best possible ice cream in the nicest possible way. Any guesses? Ben and Jerry's. And then this company's vision is to make people happy. I would say... Their real vision is to make people broke. This is Disney. (laughs) This is Disney. Make people happy. It's a picture of a preferred future. Something's not right. There's something better. And leaders lead with vision. And the vision has to start with a burden. Now, one of the things I don't want us to miss in the story of Nehemiah is that four-month window between chapter 1 
in chapter 2. When chapter 1 ended, Nehemiah's heart was broken. He was devastated and he was sad. He was depressed. He was in a funk, whatever you want to call it. And for four months, he's that way. Four months later, he finally gets in front of the king, and the king notices it. And this whole idea of Nehemiah's sadness, it's easy to skip past this, but you have to understand, this is a real man feeling real sadness. This is not an act, and it's for four straight months. And this was a problem for him, and it's actually a problem for us. Let me talk about why it was a problem for him. It was a problem for him because servants were not supposed to be sad in front of the king. That The king had this sort of divine quality to himself that he was supposed to radiate joy in such a way that any person in the presence of the king should rejoice. Like, what a joy it is. It's like how my daughters are when they see me. Just so much joy on their faces. Rejoicing, just basking in the overflow of who I am, right? It's Father's Day, so I can say that if I want. This is the way it was. And if you were sad in front of the king, it meant either there was something wrong with him, which you didn't want to imply, or there was something wrong with you which you also didn't want to imply because it could communicate a lack of loyalty and happiness in your job. And, and this is a specific time in history where uh, there was so much betrayal going on. In fact, Artaxerxes, the, the king who Nehemiah is approaching, killed his own older brother in order to become king. So this guy has no problem taking care of people who stand in his way. It's a problem for Nehemiah, but Nehemiah can't act different. I want you to hear this. Nehemiah can't act differently just because he's supposed to. He's sad, Right? And this leads us to the problem for us. Oftentimes in the American church, we're, we're told if you're sad, act differently. If you're not feeling good, just put on a happy face and go to church and, and, and fool everyone with your smile. And I'm telling you, that is not the overall message of Scripture. We don't run from our sadness. We don't rush through our sadness. In our sadness and in our sorrow, and there will be seasons of this for all of us, we receive everything God has for us. Jesus himself said, in this life, you will have trials, and, and, and there will be difficult times, and you will suffer much. But take heart. Why? Because he's going to rescue us out of every single sorrow, and he's going to make everything right here and now. No, he's overcome the world. And we don't always see the ways in which he's overcome the world here and now, but someday we will look back, and we won't see through a glass dimly, but we'll see clearly the ways in which he has overcome the world. But right now, sometimes there's seasons of sadness. And, and there's this word in the New Testament called endure. And the word endure simply means to remain under. And Nehemiah allowed himself to remain under the weight of his burden for four months so it would lead him to do something. And sometimes I wonder if as American Christians, we, we are so quick to run away from our sadness, so quick to run away from our sorrow, so quick to run away from the burden that we miss the opportunity to receive the vision that God wants to give us about the problem that's on our hearts. It's a picture of a preferred future, and we can't get that on the mountaintop. Sometimes we have to be in the valley. I don't know why the American church, I mean, I have some ideas. I don't know why we're so bad at sadness and sorrow. There's bad theology everywhere. Um, we have relatively comfortable lives in America. We have access to options and power and influence. But, you know, in, in August of 2012, somebody did a research of the top 100 songs that churches sing. And five out of the 100 songs, only five out of the 100, had anything that sounded like sorrow and lament. But when you look at the Psalms, lament is the most prevalent form of psalm. Lament. What is lament? Lament is an expression of deep grief, regret, or sorrow. Here's a quote. It's a persistent cry for salvation to the God who promises to save 
when we're in a situation of suffering or sin, in the confident hope that this God hears and responds to cries and acts now and in the future to make everything whole. And sometimes as leaders, if we're going to have vision for where we're headed, it has to start with pain for where we are. The, the willingness to enter into lament and not this necessity to rise above it and say, I don't, I don't feel that things, I, I don't know. Listen, life is difficult. This past week, my aunt passed away. My dad's sister passed away suddenly. One month after being diagnosed with cancer, she's home with Jesus this morning. And I'm telling you that you live life long enough and it, it gets you, right? It comes for you and you lose and you suffer. And as Christians, we don't put our heads in the ground and we don't put our heads in the clouds. We live here. We see it for what it is and we trust God in it. And we're willing to be honest. And that's what lament does. Lament invites you, some of you need to hear this this morning, lament invites honesty over bravery. Some of us think, well, you just gotta be brave. Well, you know what? If you read the, if you read the Psalms and if you read the authors of scriptures, they were honest. Honesty over bravery. Lament calls us uh, for admissions of weakness over shows of strength. Lament invites us to embrace the tension and mystery of no answers instead of accepting simple, cheap answers. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you in a time of sorrow, someone came along with a pretty simple, cheap answer for you? Was it in any way life-giving? Of course not, because we're smart enough. We know that this is not, the answers are not here. Lament calls for full awareness of pain over escapism and ignoring reality. And this is really important. Lament calls for running to God over running to lesser gods. One of the gifts I've learned in my life, one of the gifts of suffering is that it exposes the things that you most trust in. And if we never suffered, I don't think we would always realize some of the idols in our hearts. Some of the things that we love and trust in more than Jesus. And so suffering in, a, in its own way can be a gift to us to expose how we're putting our hopes in things that are temporary instead of things that are eternal. And even in Nehemiah's sadness, we see he turns to God and he prays. Now listen, I'll say, I said it already, but I'll say it again. Don't run from the burden of sadness and sorrow. Don't rush through it. Don't think how quickly. And, and listen, don't rush other people through it either. When are you going to feel better? When are you going to be better? Don't rush people through it. Receive every single thing that God wants to do in you and through you in that season because he's at work on the mountaintops and he's at work in the valleys and receive the vision that he wants to give you. And sometimes we don't get the vision without the valley. And out of the deepest pain, many of you have learned, comes your greatest ministry. Listen, you know, our, our youngest daughter, Madeline, who was born uh, about three months early and had a major brain injury, you, most of you know her story, has cerebral palsy, and she's a wonderful seven-year-old girl. It was a painful season, and it's one, of those, it's one of those things that continues to bring challenge. But here's what else it's done for us. It's opened up so many doors. There's so many families that we're in relationship with. There's so many groups that my wife has the opportunity to connect with, and she can stand in front of people and share what God has done. And when we see other people with children who have different disabilities and handicaps, there is this empathy in our hearts towards them that would not have existed if we didn't walk through that season. And it doesn't mean I would have chosen it, but it means God will redeem it, Right? And so this is where the vision starts, is with this sense of there is a burden in my heart, there's something broken, and what is God asking me to believe for? All right, so the vision, secondly, beyond starting with the burden, the vision must live in you first. Let's keep reading. 
Nehemiah gets back to Jerusalem. It says in verse 11, I arrived in Jerusalem three days later. I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. So Nehemiah goes at a time where people aren't going to see what he's doing. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. It's obvious he wanted to be incognito. He didn't want to make a lot of noise or be seen or noticed. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate, which is a great name, uh, to inspect the broken walls and burn gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. I love how this reads like a journal entry. So, so though it was still dark, I went up to the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. There's a famous leadership voice. His name's Max Dupree. And Max Dupree says that the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. The first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. And Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, and, and I don't know why he waits three days, but he waits. And then he goes out, and he wants to, he knows what's happened, remember? He got the report in chapter 1. He knows that the city walls are torn down. He knows that the gates are broken down. He knows that they're not rebuilt. But Nehemiah says, I need to see it for myself. And so he goes out to look for himself because he wants to, as a leader, define what reality is. And so he goes, and listen, he's looking for a vision, but he wants to know where are we today. I, you know, I think of my daughters growing up in the world that they're growing up in, the, th the things in which they're not going to know what life was like before Google Maps. And I remember what life was like before Google Maps. It was terrible. It was the worst. You know, people try, isn't it amazing that you never ask for directions anymore? You don't have to. But years ago, we always would ask for directions. And some people gave, some people's directions had way too little information. And some people's directions had way too much information, right? You, you know what I'm talking about. And then you knew what people loved most based on how they gave your directions. So when I would give directions, I would always give it based on restaurants. I'd be like, all right, so you're going to drive past an Arby's. You're going to see a Taco Bell. You're going to turn right. If you see Francesca's, you've gone too far, right? That was like all, that was my entire way of explaining people. And so now when people try to tell me where stuff is on Erie Boulevard, I just say, what, what restaurant is in here? Because then I will know exactly what you're talking about. I don't know what we did before Google Maps, but if you use Google Maps, it's not enough just to put in your destination location. They want to know what else. Where are you starting? Is it right now where we have you kind of picked out, or is it somewhere else? If you're going to get there, we need to know where you are here. And as leaders that are going to lead with vision, if we're going to lead people somewhere, we need to know where we are right here and right now, and we have to own it. And this is what Nehemiah is doing. He's looking around and saying, where are we headed, but where are we right now? And Nehemiah doesn't share it at first. He, it, it, it's nighttime. It's private. It's just him. But here's what I want you to notice, that when Nehemiah begins to walk around these walls, what I believe is that because of how Nehemiah leads, he doesn't just see the brokenness of the walls. He can see them already rebuilt. In his mind's eye, in his heart, he can see, and this is what leaders do. Listen, leaders see things before others do. Leaders see things before they actually exist. Leaders have the vision to say, I know it looks bad, but this is what it can be. Leaders are like, you know, like my dad many years ago who looked at this, uh, this big field out here, and he had a vision. 
and he knew what it could be. And we didn't have any clue back then that 31 would turn into what it is and with the cherry on top of a Chick-fil-A, right? We didn't, we didn't know that many years ago. But he had vision, and leaders have vision. And I just want to say that God will continue and pray that God will continue to give me and the pastors and the leaders of this church vision to know now where are you taking us? What's the next dream that you want to give to this church? Because leaders lead with vision, but it starts in here. It starts with me. If you don't own it, if you don't love it, if you don't obsess about it, if you don't dream about it, if you don't think about it, you're never going to be able to give it to others. God wants to give us vision. God wants to give his people dreams, dreams that are so big that if he doesn't step in, they will fail. And it has to live in you. Now listen, I just want to wrap this point up with this application. I believe that God doesn't just give us vision for buildings and vision for projects. I believe God wants to give you a vision for your own life. I believe, dads, I believe God wants to give you a vision for your children's lives. I believe that God wants to give us a vision for our homes. What, could, what are our homes now? How do our homes function now? Five years from now, what could our home look like? And I'm not talking about the granite countertop. <laughs> I'm talking about five years from now, what if we have people in our home every week that we're discipling and pouring our hearts into? God wants to give you a vision for your life, for your family, for your children. For your, God, listen, God wants to give you a vision for where you work. What could that look like? What kind of impact, what kind of kingdom impact could you have if you lift your eyes up and say, God, give me a vision for my workplace. It's not just a place that I punch in and punch out but it's a place where the kingdom of God becomes manifest in such a way that people begin to place their faith and trust in Jesus because of the vision that you've given me. And I, don't, I hope that all day this question will haunt you in a way. What is your vision for your life? What is your vision for your family? What is your vision for your home? What is your vision for your work? Don't just live life. Lift your eyes and let God give you fresh vision and let it live in you. And then lastly this morning, the vision must be shared with others. It has to be shared. You know, the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, God said, write it down and take off and run. Because the vision, it has to be shared. It has to be told. In 2012, there was an article in the psychology today called What Motivates People at Work. And the number one thing was security. And Nehemiah does this. He has this. He says, we need these walls. We're unsecure. We're insecure. The second thing is stimulation. Stimulation simply meaning a challenge to do work. And Nehemiah, will see, he does this. But then the third thing, I thought this was so interesting, that motivates people at work is not just security of a paycheck. It's not just the stimulation of you better work or you'll be fired. It is identity. <laughs> identity is what motivates people to work, that they're a part of something. And that's what's primary here. When Nehemiah comes with this vision, we're going to read it in just a second. He doesn't just say, well, let's get to work. But he says, this is who we are and this is who our God is. Look at verse 17 and we're going to finish looking at this verse. But Nehemiah says, now I said to them. Now he finally speaks out. The vision was in him first. Now he's seen it for what it is and he sees it for what it could be. And he gathers people together and he speaks to them. And he says, you know very well what trouble we are in. And I, and I love this. Do we have this verse? Verse 17 is in there? Yeah. You know very well what trouble we are in. I, you know what? This is such a great leadership lesson. Listen. This really wasn't Nehemiah's trouble three days ago. He was comfortable. He had a great life serving wine to the king of uh, Persia. But as soon as he got there, he said, your problem is my problem. And that's what leaders do. Leaders don't say, your problem is your problem, figure it out. Leaders say, your problem is my problem. 
I'm in this with you. And so he says, you know very well what trouble we are in. And what he's communicating in that moment also is, I'm not just going to run off on you. I'm not just a leader with a plan that says execute it and then come talk to me in a week after you. I'm going to walk with you through this. We. Jerusalem lies in ruins. He's defining reality. And its gates have been destroyed by fire. And now he begins to cast vision. Let us, I'm with you, shoulder to shoulder. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. And then he, he begins to give them hope and remind them of who they are and who God is. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me. He goes and tells them about Nehemiah chapter 1. The king did this for me, and he sent me with a letter, and he sent me with, a, with a protection and security and a military escort, and he gave us permission to take the wood from his fort. He's saying, look at how gracious God has been. And if this God who has been this gracious to me thus far, he will not fail me now. He will bring us to the end about my conversation with the king. And they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. Now listen, and remember that vision is a picture of a preferred future. And what Nehemiah does in this moment is he casts a vision. And if you're a leader of an organization or a company and you're working on a vision statement, the best piece of advice I can give you is this. Vision statements are aspirational, not achievable. It's not things we can necessarily get done in our lifetime, but it's things that we dream about, things that keep us up at night, aspirational, not necessarily achievable. And Nehemiah begins to share this, and he shares it, and when we're casting vision to people, we have to share the vision over and over and over. One of the leadership lessons I've been taught is that as the leader of a church, the moment I get, when I, when I start to get sick of saying our vision statement, that's when everybody's starting to hear it. That's how much you have to talk about the vision, speak about the vision of who we are and where we are headed. And God gives Nehemiah this vision, and he begins to share it. And I just want to say as we close, I'm going to invite the band up here. There's something powerful about speaking stuff out loud. There's something powerful about sharing stuff out loud. As long as it's in your head, you can stop doing it, and no one can hold you accountable. But as soon as you say it, right? So like just two days ago, I said to my wife, Monday... I'm, I'm going to go back on my, my low-carb diet. And it had been in my head for weeks because I've been looking in the mirror and going, i got to do something. Um, but, but until I and now I've said it in front of everybody. <laughs> so now, I've, now you're really going to hold. So those of you that have lunch meetings with me coming up, you've you got to hold me to it, right? It's got to be something miserable like a salad. And so, you know, when you say it out loud, now there's people there to say, hey, you said it, let's go. Sometimes I just find myself, even with our own pastors, saying, let's, let's do this. I don't know how we're going to do it yet. I don't have a plan, but I know it's worth doing. And as soon as I say it out loud, now I'm accountable to do it, and I have a team that will buy in and work with me. It's the power of sharing things out loud. Vision brings clarity, clarifies what we're doing. It also clarifies your no. There's a whole lesson in that. But vision, what is our vision? At Trinity, we have a vision statement. Hopefully you've heard it. You definitely have seen it as you've walked out of the lobby. It's printed right over the doors. Our vision is gospel transformation. That phrase is so powerful. It simply means that Jesus can change everything about you. Your spiritual life, your social life, your relational life, your mental life, Jesus can change everything. Gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life in our area. That's our vision. That's what keeps me up at night. That and when I eat too much pizza, right? But that's what, that's, that's what drives me and pushes me is this idea, like, what would it look like to see gospel transformation in every area of my life, every single Is it achievable? Probably not in this lifetime, but is it aspirational? Yeah. 
Is it worth going after? Absolutely. Gospel transformation in every area of my life and in every single life, 60,000 people just in the town of Clay, many of whom have not given Jesus one thought this week, and they need to encounter his love. God's given us a vision as a church to say, we want to see them encounter Jesus and be changed by Jesus. And whatever we have to do to love them and serve them so that they'll consider Jesus, we'll do it. Because that's how big our vision is. That every life in our area would experience Jesus. And what did Jesus do for us? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. If it doesn't help you run, leave it behind you especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with the endurance, the race that God has set before us. And look at, here's what Jesus did, verse two. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. He's the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. He started it and he's perfecting it and he will finish it. It's his work from beginning to end. He is the cornerstone and he is the capstone. He's the alpha, he's the omega, he's the beginning and the end. There's nothing he can't do. There's nothing he will not do for those who keep their eyes on him him. Now, why did Jesus do what he did? And here's the vision. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. He disregarded its shame. And now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. And what I want you to see is that Jesus Christ, the man, he had a vision because of the joy awaiting him. Now, what does that mean? Two things. Number one, the joy of doing his father's will. He lived to do the will of the father. But number two, you and me, we were his vision. When he went to the cross, you were on his mind. You were on his heart. You were the vision. You were his dream. You were his hope that he would have you, that he would restore you to the Father, that he would bring you home. And because Jesus had that sort of vision, he was able to endure even the cross. And God, this morning, I pray that you would give your people a vision that strengthens us and it helps us to endure the seasons of life that we find ourselves in this morning, that we would not set our eyes on our circumstances, but that we would lift our eyes and that you would give us fresh vision and fresh passion, fresh hope this morning by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name.